This podcast is Challenging Opinions and is presented by William Campbell. Thank you for downloading the Challenging Opinions podcast for May 19th, 2017. Every Monday, I'm bringing you brand new content, but for the past while on Wednesdays and Fridays, I've been including previous interviews in this feed. This is the last one of these. It features the journalist and author Christopher Snowden. Enjoy the interview. Challenging Opinions is the podcast where ideas are tested. Whether you are left or right, conservative or progressive, devout or skeptic, What matters is the strength of your argument, not the strength of your voice. Christopher Snowden is the head of lifestyle economics at the Institute of Economics Affairs. I think that's a right-leaning think tank. He also writes for the website Spectator Health, and uh, he was writing about the sugar tax recently. Um, Christopher Obesity around the world, but particularly in the Americas, uh, is looks like it's a pretty serious problem, particularly in youth. And the number of children who are obese has more than doubled in the past 30 years. Children as young as 6 to 11, their obesity rates have gone up from 7% in the 80s to nearly 18%. The percentage of adolescents who are obese, that's 12 to 19-year-olds, has gone up from 5% to 21%. That's a huge jump. A lot of that extra weight comes from drinking high sugar sodas. Doesn't it make sense that we should tax them and steer people away from them? Well, it's actually quite a small percentage, actually, of of, uh, overall calorie intake. Mm -hmm. Um, I don't know what the figure is in America, but in Britain, um, it represents only 3% of total calories consumed. Um, These kind of taxes, if they reduce consumption at all, um, are only going to reduce it by a few percentage points. So we're talking about a few percentage point reduction to something that is only uh, contributing a few percentage points of overall calorie intake. So it would be very uh, surprising if you saw any measurable effects on obesity from putting relatively small taxes on a very small part of the diet. Okay, but your your speciality is lifestyle economics. I'm sure you'd agree that there is a very serious problem with obesity, particularly in young people and particularly in West, also in Mexico, but particularly in Western societies. Well, I mean, certainly rates have gone up. Uh, average body weight has uh, increased very significantly over the course of the last 40 years or so. I'm a bit more sceptical about the childhood obesity figures because... Um, well, those, those figures I quoted are from the Centers for Disease Control in the US. Yeah, yeah, no, I'm not, I'm not uh, quibbling with the source. It's the measurements of it, actually, that I think is, um, is rather dubious. But be that as it may, the, yeah, there's no doubt that uh, there are more fat people around than ever before. Um, the question is really twofold. One... Is that the government's business to try and tackle? And two, can the government realistically tackle it? I think no to both those questions. But even if you think yes, it should be business of government to tackle it, we need to ask whether the government is able to do so. I'm very, very skeptical that there's any economic levers that could be pulled in a freeish society, in a liberal society, where you're not going to force people to exercise in the morning or you're not going to um, put them on weighing scales and tax them by their body mass. Uh, I, I'm very sceptical when you've got people who are affluent, who uh, you know have 
their grocery shopping is a relatively small part of the household budget, even for people on low incomes. Mm-hmm. And when food and drink is so important to people, they're, they're not actually very price sensitive. The price of food goes up all the time, just due to natural world prices changing. Um, but it Al- doesn't Alcoholic drinks are you referring to? Uh, no soft drinks, really. Right, okay. but, I mean, you can look at alcoholic drinks as a, as a kind of case study, um, because, again, I talk about Britain, but I'm, most Western countries tax alcohol at a much higher rate than anybody's talking about with sodas. Um, in Britain, for example, there's about a 700% tax, or maybe a little bit less, 700% tax on cigarettes, maybe two or 300% tax on spirits, you know, a bottle of whiskey. Mm-hmm. The great bulk of the price of a bottle of whiskey is tax. And even then, you have obviously a very, very large number of people drinking and drinking to excess and indeed smoking. So nobody's saying putting taxes on things doesn't reduce consumption somewhat. The question is, how much will it reduce consumption by? And the economic evidence shows it's very trivial. Well, well, I think, I think, Christopher, you're partly right. I think that sometimes this can be a very blunt instrument and that it just doesn't work at all because there's very, shall we say, complicated motivations working there. But one that uh, I noted, I know that uh, in the UK recently, there was a five pence, that's about, you know, six or seven US cents, a five pence tax added to plastic bags that you would get at the grocery store to, to bring your shopping home. That had an enormous effect on behavior and the number of plastic bags uh, being used and therefore being wasted absolutely collapsed. Now, five pence is a tiny proportion of what the typical family would spend in a, in a grocery store, in a supermarket uh, for their weekly shop, but it had a huge effect on behavior. I agree with you that it can sometimes not work, but surely you'd have to agree that if it's done right, it's possible to have a huge effect. Yeah, it could be. And the, and the carrier bag tax is a very interesting example because you're quite right. If somebody's going out shopping and spending $100 and they only have to pay 20 cents for a few bags, it doesn't seem particularly rational to go to the effort of finding some old bags in your house and taking them to, to, to the shop. And yet the, the rate of plastic bag consumption fell by 70% or that kind of order. Mm-hmm. So it's enormous. But of course, the difference there is you're going for something being from something being free to something costing a little bit of money. Um, so it's different to something which you're already paying for having the price rise a little bit. And what, what I think that has done is it's given people a reminder to do something that they know they probably should be doing anyway. And people maybe kind of realize the, they understand the reasons for the plastic bag tax mm-hmm. and having that little nudge of having to pay an extra 20, 25p is enough for a large number of people to uh, do what they, some of them were doing already and others wish they had been doing. The difference is if you look at, for example, a pack of cigarettes, clearly the effect of putting 5p on a pack of cigarettes is going to be nothing like putting 5p on a, on a plastic bag. Obviously, I mean, put 5p on a pack of cigarettes, it essentially has no impact whatsoever. It needs to be £5. And even then, 20% of the population continue to smoke. So the well, rate Hold on for a second. You're, you're right not. that 20%, I mean, cigarettes are known to be highly addictive, and 20% of the population in the UK, it's, that's probably one of the lower countries in Europe, 20% of the population continue to smoke. But that's quite a quickly declining number, given that it's a highly addictive product. Wouldn't you think that the public opprobrium or the signal from on high that, look, smoking isn't the best thing to be doing, the signal that that tax gives is an important factor as well. 
Oh, sure, yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's a whole bunch of things in the case of smoking. You know, mm-hmm. we've had a campaign going for like 70 years on smoking. It's not just tax, it's been the warnings, the educational campaigns, all sorts of things. Smoking bans, of course, have been a big big part of it, I'm sure, particularly in the US. But again, you look at the US, you look at California, where you have extremely low smoking rates. The tax on a pack of cigarettes is remarkably low. They're having a vote on uh, hiking it up by two, $2 at the moment, but it would still, even after that tax, uh, be much lower than the, in the UK. So most, most American smokers, most that. American smokers would die of a heart attack if they had to pay European prices for cigarettes, and that would have nothing to do with the actual smoking. Right, exactly. So, um, I, but so I want to, I want to focus. I want to go back onto the uh, on, to stick on the on the sugar tax because. This is one particular, I've been looking at the research on this, and I'm going to post links to all the research, and I'm going for uh, peer-reviewed research in scientific journals, not just uh, the odd blog. But the research on this is really quite strong. First of all, because sugary drinks in particular deliver a huge amount of calories, and we're looking at uh, young people in the U.S. having 10 or 20% of their daily calorie intake coming from sugary drinks. But even though they have very high calorie intake, they don't register with the body in the same way as eaten calories register. And they're particularly problematic because essentially they seem to be invisible to the body. And drinking high sugar drinks in particular is associated with obesity. Um the uh, and the, I'm looking at figures that are um, a couple of years old from 2006, but the U.S. Um, beverage industries spend more than three billion dollars a year marketing sweet drinks. These are the cokes, the uh, the various uh, Sprite and so forth drinks, and half a billion dollars a year marketing it to specifically to children. Isn't some sort of pushback against that needed? Well, if you look at the advertising that people like Coke and Pepsi do these days, actually, you'll see that n- nearly all of it is actually for the diet drinks. I believe Pepsi haven't advertised anything other than their oh no, it's zero just to be sugar clear, brand just to for be about clear, 10 years. Those, that three billion is specifically for the high sugar drinks. Oh, really? Okay. Yes. Um, well, the, obviously, I, I, they market the the uh, the the these um, uh, low calorie versions as well. Again, I can't speak to America, but I know in Britain they've only been Pepsi's only been advertising Pepsi Maps for for over ten years, and the Coke advertising tends to show the entire range of products. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, I mean, companies spend a huge amount of money advertising all sorts of different things. It doesn't force people to buy them. If it did, everybody would be switching over to the to the diet versions. Isn't some sort of pushback against that needed? That that there's an enormous budget and an enormous incentive on drinks companies to push these drinks very hard because they're hugely popular. Doesn't there need to be some sort of pushback in the other direction from public health authorities? Well, I'm, I don't. I don't really agree with the, the whole idea of trying to pin the very complex problem of obesity on a single product uh, or indeed a single category that contains that product, i.e., sugar. There's been uh, a disproportionate focus on sugar in general uh, in recent years, following on from a disproportionate emphasis on fat mm-hmm. in, a, in, a, in an earlier era. And I don't think any of this is uh, based on particularly robust science or is particularly a healthy way of looking at it. The, uh, the, you know, the, the story of obesity is really very simple for all that the multi-billion pound diet industry would try and pretend that it's that there's some magic bullet that you can you can use it's really ex- exercise and, and eating sensibly i do agree with you that sugary drinks are probably one of the easier parts of the diet uh, to cut out and obviously they don't satisfy hunger that's that's i guess the difference between uh, 
sugary drinks and chocolate bars and pizzas and what have you. So you haven't got that um, satiation of hunger. So you would think it would be one of the easier things to cut out. Mm -hmm. And yet people do have a huge range of diet options which are available on the same shelves at the same price. And people don't go for them. I mean, large numbers of people do, don't get me wrong, about half of the sugary drink, uh, sorry, half of the fizzy drink market now in Britain is uh, entirely zero sugar. Mm-hmm. So there's a, a big market for them and the sugary drink companies are trying to push more and more people in that direction. But um, I am not alone in thinking that Diet Coke does not taste anywhere near as good as Coca-Cola. And fortunately, I'm, I'm not obese and I don't feel I'm at risk of obesity, so I don't see why I should have to pay more. For me, the quality of both of those drinks is absolutely identical. And uh, uh, that's at zero. I wouldn't drink either of them, but that's, that's my choice. That's not uh, something that an awful lot of people do. But you have to agree that there is a very serious problem here and that obesity rates are rising really quite sharply and that that has the potential to have very, very serious uh, health consequences that has personal consequences for the people who suffer. It also has societal con- consequences that the uh, the healthcare uh, costs tend to fall on the whole of society. Uh, yes, they do. Um, there are also savings, actually, if you look at the overall um, budget. I'm not a big one for believing that if you have some kind of social, socialized healthcare system, that means the government can tell you how to live your life. I think that's a, a dangerous a dangerous trade-off to make, to say that you can only be free to do things so long as it doesn't cost the government money. You know, everybody pays taxes, um, people... Uh, uh, and there's a, there's, a, there's a difference ways. between cost as an absolute, and the cost of a clearly negative effect like serious health problems. Yeah, I mean, I say it. People have health problems. If you're going to have a socialised healthcare system, it's part of the deal that everybody pays for each other's healthcare costs. Oh, that happens even if you've got an insurance-based system. You know, you're going to be paying higher premiums even if you personally aren't obese. If a large portion of the population is obese, you're going to be paying higher premiums. Well, you shouldn't be doing If it was an efficient insurance market, actually, people who are at higher risk should be paying more and the other people shouldn't be. Um, so I, I don't know enough about insurance to know whether it's working efficiently or not, but that's how you would generally deal with that issue. In a country like Britain, where everybody's paying for everybody else's healthcare system, yes, you, um, you do get this constant complaint from people that, you know, in theory, they don't mind people drinking, smoking and eating what they like, but actually... They don't like having to pay for other people's healthcare. Well, if the deal of having socialised healthcare is that you're not allowed to do a whole range of things or you have to be taxed to do this and banned from doing that, then uh, I'd rather get rid of socialised healthcare. Uh, I don't actually think that's people's genuine concern most of the time. I think it's a desire to force people to live in a way that they, that they approve of. Um, but going back to the fizzy drinks, I just, I really do think it's, I mean, I look at this from, from an economic point of view. Um, I don't look at it as as some public health people do, which is that you've got to pull out all the stops and nothing is off limits if it might have some trivial reduction in calorie intake for people. Um, these taxes do have a negative effect, um, and you've got to look at the negative consequences as well as the potential tell, positive tell me, ones. Tell me about the negative consequences. Well, these kind of taxes are they're regressive taxes. They're in, all indirect taxes, unless they're on things like Ferraris and caviar, are going to... Just, uh, just to exp- explain that. A, a regressive well, yeah. tax is something that applies much more heavily 
uh, or as a much larger percentage of the income of somebody who's poorer. So it's easy for a richer person to pay a few cents extra for a, a can of Coca-Cola. It, it becomes a more significant percentage, a, a more significant cost when it's a higher percentage of your income because you're not so rich. Exactly. Yeah. And and most indirect taxes, you know, a, a flat tax of a dollar on a commonly bought item, for example, uh, is always going to take a larger percentage of income from the poor than from the rich. Mm-hmm. As it happens with sugary drinks, people on low incomes drink somewhat more of them anyway. So it's, it's doubly regressive, if you like. Um, and the, the sums of money we're talking are not enormous to somebody on, on a middling income. Um, but you know, they're, they're not totally negligible. And um, there are already a lot of regressive indirect sales taxes around while piling more on. I don't have a problem in principle with uh, you know, taxing things. <laughs> you know, I think we've got to raise money somehow. And from a cynical political point of view, you can't just raise all your money from the rich. Uh, and sugar taxes actually provide quite a neat way for politicians to tax people that they normally can't tax without upsetting a lot of people, the elderly, the unemployed, the poor, um, and sugar taxes do that quite well. And not only do people who normally defend the rights of the poor generally support these taxes, uh, they're the ones pushing them often in the first place. So there's not there's not many taxes. Sorry, is this an advantage or a disadvantage, Christopher? It's I think it's a bad thing, but I can see why politicians are doing it. Mm-hmm. And in America, in particular, politicians are pretty open about the fact that this is just a money raising. Uh, scheme in Philadelphia, they're taxing the non-sugary drinks along with the sugary drinks at the same rate. In France, they do the same thing. Uh, it seems to me fairly obvious that if you're taxing drinks that have no sugar in them whatsoever on the basis of well, that's, that's not a that, sugar tax, is it? Exactly, but they'll still call it the sugar tax, and they'll still try and pretend it's about health. It's about raising money. The reality is, all taxation is about raising money. I just want to look at a BMJ study. The BMJ is the British Medical Journal. It's the um, the scientific journal from uh, the British Medical Association, and they looked at Mexico, which introduced a tax specifically on sugary drinks. Mexico is the country with the highest rate of obesity in the world. They overtook the United States, if that's a, that's right, yeah. that's, that's a thing to say. Um, and they say that compared to a counterfactual, that's to say what, the, what would have happened if they hadn't brought in the tax, purchases of the tax beverages decreased by initially 6%, rising to 12%. But, and this is following on from your point, amongst the lowest econo- um, socioeconomic groups, the declines were sharper. They went down uh, by 9%, uh, increasing to 17%. That's quite a quite a uh, an effect. And that's actually going after exactly the people because it's poorer people who are suffering from more obesity, isn't it? It's certainly going after them. It depends how you uh, define going after them. I mean, the important um, phrase there is compared to a counterfactual. Mm-hmm. The actual the actual sales hardly changed at all. Yeah, but um, the population grew and the population became more wealthy, and it's easy to say what the sales would have been given that. Uh, well, it's not easy at all, actually. I mean, it wasn't. It, yeah, obviously, you would you would take into account population growth. So you're only looking at per capita consumption anyway. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the counterfactual were things like, well, you know, what if the weather had been a bit hotter or colder, and these kind of things. Uh, so a lot of this actually is is glorified guesswork. Um, but having said that. You know, it wouldn't surprise me if sales had dropped by 6 or 8%. It's the kind of um, consequence you would expect given the price elasticity of soda. Um, the question is, what's, what, what, you know, what do they drink more of? 
did people start drinking more milkshakes or fruit juice or beer or what have you? Mm-hmm. Seems to be some, some survey evidence that people did. And certainly the evidence from America, um, where most states have some kind of soda tax, albeit often quite a, a low one, um, the evidence is people do exactly that. They shift to other products. So you have the substitution effect where people naturally reduce their consumption somewhat if you tax something, but they'll they switch to something else. People have to drink something, and although the public health people would like them to switch to water, that's not always what they do. In fact, one of the problems in Mexico is there isn't always clean drinking water to, um, to, to, to drink in the first place. Do you think that this is a rerun of the moralizing of the temperance movement? I think it's more the precedent it sets. Um, and people like Jamie Oliver, who's a TV chef in Britain, very famous, um, he lobbied very hard for the sugar tax. But when it came in, he said he didn't expect it to make any difference to obesity. It was just a symbolic gesture. And it's that symbolic gesture of saying, right, we're now going to start treating fizzy drinks kind of like cigarettes. And the next step now is to deal with the advertising and to put warnings on them, as they have in San Francisco. And you just go down this slippery slope of regulating uh, what, until very recently, was considered to be a fairly benign product. And just as a brief um, digression, going mm. back to prohibition, uh, not a lot of people realize that Coca-Cola were big fans of prohibition and were lobbying for it. Uh, because they won either way. If people stopped drinking, then uh, they stopped drinking alcohol, then they would switch to soft drinks, and if they kept drinking alcohol in the form of moonshine, they need something to mix it with. That sounds like a a very Machiavellian uh, thing to be doing. Can I ask, have you been involved in the lobbying or working for any lobbyists uh, who are opposing the sugar tax? No, but I have spoken to some of the people in the soft drink companies to find out what they think is going to happen after the um, sugar tax comes in in 2018 and it's fascinating all the different unintended consequences that could arise partly because Britain is introducing the tax in a rather strange way that it's directly taxing the companies rather than simply putting a sales tax on the product mm-hmm. it, it obviously can't tax companies that aren't based in Britain so there's a large scope for people to import there's potentially, um, and the government's accepted this, there is potentially scope for some sort of black market, if you like, to open up, but certainly tax evasion uh, opportunities there. So it'd be very interesting how it pans out. The other thing that could happen is because the companies are being taxed rather than the drinks themselves, the companies might well put the price of the diet drinks up as well as the price of the sugary drinks up. They can put the price of anything up to get the money back. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's all sorts of strange things could happen. It'd be interesting to see how it pans out. It certainly will be interesting. Uh, Christopher Snowden, the Head of Lifestyle Economics at the Institute for Economic Affairs in the UK, thank you very much for talking to me. Thank you. Never miss a show. Follow at Challenging O on Twitter and like Challenging Opinions on Facebook for updates on each show's contents. That's all for the Challenging Opinions podcast published on May 19th, 2017. I have background information and links to many of the studies I was talking about there with Christopher in the show notes for the podcast that you can find on the website. Do you know someone who I should interview? What topics should I be covering? I'd be really interested to hear your feedback. If you like the podcast, there's one thing that you could do that would really help other people to find it. Go on iTunes, give the podcast a rating and write a short review. There's a link on the website directly to the iTunes page. Also, please like the show on Facebook. On Twitter, you can follow the show at Challenging O, and you can also follow Christopher Snowden at CJ Snowden. 
And most importantly, subscribe to the show. You can use iTunes if you're an Apple person or Google Play Music if you're on Android. Uh, There's links for both of those and for the RSS feed if you use that. And I know not everyone uses podcast software. A lot of you just listen on the website. So you can also just enter your email address on the Changing Opinions website. And each time a new show goes online, which will be once a week from now on, you'll get a simple email with a link to listen to the show and no spam at all, I promise. You can find all of that or get in touch with me at www.challengingopinions.com. Coming on Monday, that's May 22nd, I'll have the second part of my interview with Rebecca Lemke about her life inside and outside the purity movement. The Challenging Opinions podcast is produced and presented by me, William Campbell. Thank you for listening. Thank you.